We're starting a new series that'll run for, oh, maybe 13, 14 Sunday nights. The title that I chose quite a while back is, and it's, I think it's on the poster, um, On a Hill Too Far Away, 15 Protestant Truths About the Death of God the Son. On a Hill Too Far Away, because we used to sing, maybe you remember, On a Hill Far Away. Or if we were doing it here, On a Hill Far Away. But you know the, 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 the song, On a Hill Too Far Away. Something that's getting sort of out of view, out of focus. Not as clearly seen anymore as it used to be. If you ask the average Christian why Jesus died on the cross, the answer you would get is, so my sins could be forgiven. And that's not an incorrect answer. It's, it's correct. The problem is, if you ask the average Christian, that's the only thing that's overstating it. But if you ask many Christians <clears throat> about the cross, that's the only thing they know about the cross. Jesus died so I would be forgiven. And while that's a part of the meaning of the cross, it doesn't anywhere near exhaust what happened at the cross. And so my desire is to bring into focus sort of the center of our faith so that when we think about the cross and when we talk about the cross, we will have um, an adequate understanding so that we see something massive there, something big upon which the foundation of our whole Christian life gets constructed. So where do you start? And where I want to start is, Jesus died to absorb God's just wrath and to please his heavenly Father. And I hope you notice... Again, this isn't all there is to the cross, but I hope you notice that where we're starting really has nothing to do with us. I didn't talk about anything we get out of the cross. Jesus died to absorb God's just wrath against sin and to please his heavenly Father. And, and the question is, is that a fair place to start? I want to show you why I think it is. There are three texts, Romans 3, 21 to 25. <clears throat> you all have these in your notes, these texts? Okay, good stuff. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God... When he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, he's, he's not talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. And I would have thought that what he would have said first is, this is where the love of God is manifested. For God so loved the world. It seems like that would be a good starting place. And that's certainly one of the things we're going to look at. But it's not where Paul starts. But now the righteousness of God, the, the justice of God, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. He he's, has spent uh, Romans, last part of 1, chapter 2, first part of chapter 3, trying to prove that both Jew and Gentile stand before God as sinners. Okay? That, that's what he's been saying. So now he's saying there's no distinction for all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you wanted, you could put the word all in there again. It's implied in the text. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, whether you're um, Gentiles or whether you're Jews, the only way anybody's going to be justified isn't by keeping the law. The only way anyone is all are going to be justified is by his grace as a gift. No one's going to be justified apart from Jesus Christ. It's not just, it's not just uh, a segment of the population. It's not just a parochial group of Christian evangelicals who are going to be justified this way. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew, Muslim, Hindu. It doesn't matter. No religious background at all. There's no way of being justified before God unless it's going to be through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then here's where I would underline. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. I want to talk about that word in just a little bit. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Whose blood? The blood of Jesus on the cross. To be received by faith. Okay, so why did God do all of this? This was to show, so he's explaining now, here's the reason. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now that phrase needs some explaining because... Any thinking person is going to say, passed over former sins. Are you kidding me? He kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Um, he, he punishes the whole world with a flood. Um, remember Achan and his family, the Valley of Ai, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, passed over sin? You, you, seriously? You think God passes over sins? He doesn't mean passed over in the sense of not judging them. He means passed over in the sense of God has not permanently dealt with those sins yet. Jesus hadn't come and hadn't died. That's what he means. Not that there weren't consequences to sin, but God hadn't dealt with the problem of sin. Next text, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That sentence ought to make everybody just stop and go, unbelievable. That just makes no sense, Pastor Don. I want to talk about why it does. It was the will of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, this suffering servant. And by the way, Jews will tell you to this day that the suffering servant is Israel. It's not. There's no way you can make that fit the passage where it talks about the sinlessness of the suffering servant. 
he has put him to grief. He has put him, the suffering servant, to grief when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. There'll be fruit from this. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord is not contrary to his will, this death on the cross. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. One more text. And just so you know, I could have picked 25 texts. This is not some little sidebar in the scriptures. This is, this is the heart pumping the blood in the Bible. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up. Now, this is a different perspective. Jesus offering himself, gave himself up for us. But now, notice... A fragrant offering, something pleasing, with a beautiful fragrance. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to who? To, to God. And it's a, it's a pleasing aroma. Really? The death of his son? So we hear these words so much that, that the sharp edges of them have sort of worn down with the passing of time. There is a sense in which, again, this isn't the whole truth, but if you're going to divide it up, and of course you you can't really do that, but for the purpose of study, if you're dividing up the different accomplishments, the different uh, uh, victories, what happened on the cross, if you're going to divide it up, this is certainly one place you can start. There's only one proper response to the question, who killed Jesus? One proper response. Roman soldiers, Jewish agitators. But at a certain level, and I'm not asking you to take my word for this, I want to show it to you from God's word, the only correct answer to who killed Jesus is Father God did. Father God did. There were human agencies involved, but not in the sense that they were solely responsible Peter and John, they make this point crystal clear in their defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin. They're brought and they're told not to talk about this anymore. And here's what they say, Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, they're in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is, this is a prayer. They're speaking to Father God. Okay, this is a prayer. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, listen, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So all these actors were performing their function, but but who ordained this? God did. It goes deeper still. This isn't just Peter and John sort of waxing eloquent. This is the understanding Jesus had. 
of his own suffering and death. Never once did Jesus view his execution on the cross as being the result of some human vendetta against himself. He never viewed his own end as sort of the tragic conclusion of a revolution gone wrong or a mission failed. Here's how he talked about his own death. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this authority, I have received from my Father. This is where the assignment comes from. And so Jesus reveals this stunning truth. What do you see in my crucifixion? Do you think I'm being trapped by circumstances? Do do you think the mob is robbing me of my life? Is that what you think is going on here? What I want to say tonight is, the scriptures must be given their own voice. Our approval is neither here nor there. Whether we like this or not makes no difference. Whether this is the understanding you had when you came into this place doesn't matter. Whether I think it's appropriate or not makes no difference. We, we mustn't twist or muzzle divine revelation at the point of its most crucial proclamation. In fact... Paul, in another place, goes back way before the actual crucifixion to the the plan of God that brought this all about. You get to pull back the curtain and see things that we don't normally get to see. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Paul writes to Timothy, this young pastor, and he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of, listen to this, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began. So so the Trinity is involved in the planning of this divine rescue mission. The events took place about 2,000 years ago. The divine plan took place before this world was created. Calvinists aren't the only ones who believe that, by the way, if that comes as a surprise to you. Such is Father God's involvement in the death of Jesus Christ. There was nothing last minute about it. It was a manifestation of divine justice and wrath, but it wasn't an explosive power of temper. Let me talk to you just for a minute about something else. And you have to think back now a little bit. Because there's something else that's quite striking about the biblical account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want you to think back now, if you can. Think back with me 12 years ago. A movie came out. Anybody remember what movie I'm thinking about? Twelve years ago, relating to this subject. It was a big deal in the church. The Passion of the Christ, remember? 
Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. And like most things that, that, that get the church all tied in a knot, it comes on the scene with a bang and everybody's talking about it and reacting to it and polarizing over it. And then it quickly kind of fades to black. When was the last time you heard anybody talk about the passion of the Christ? When was the last time you heard anybody talk about the shack and how it changed their life? When's the last time you heard somebody talk about Rob Bell's Love Wins? These things just kind of roll along and, and everybody's up in arms and all in a dither. And then three months later, what was that book again? I, somebody did. But I can still remember the tussle in Cedarview and in the media about the intense violence. So the big thing you'd hear talked about in the foyer and after church and in classes, should Christians go and see this R-rated movie? It was pretty gruesome. And yet, surprisingly, now I have a point in this. Surprisingly, the scriptures from which almost all the information we have about the crucifixion of Jesus comes. That's where we get it. The scriptures really don't emphasize that as- aspect of the crucifixion at all. This, the physical violence, the torment. In fact, it's, it's stunning to notice how briefly... So the trial and all those events leading up to it, you get a lot of coverage. But I'm talking about the actual on the cross crucifying. I'm talking about that moment. It gets almost no coverage in the Gospels. Have you noticed that before? Let me read to you what the Gospels say about that point. The point of crucifixion. Luke 23:33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand, one on his left. Period. verse. Here's how John talks about it. John 19, 18. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between. Bang. He's crucified. Now, there have always been Christian voices digging deep into the gory details, and they cite all sorts of ancient historic documents, and they do exist. The idea behind it, though, is misguided. The idea is that somehow we will love Jesus more. We will worship him more passionately if only we fully grasped how much he agonized on the cross. And if that is true, then Luke and John missed perhaps the greatest opportunity to generate love for Jesus. If, if grasping Christ's physical suffering is the road to deeper love for Jesus, then why didn't the Holy Spirit of God fuel our passion with the greatest tool in existence for generating love for our Lord? How could the Holy Spirit have made such a blunder? True enough, we're told in the New Testament, we're told how they placed a crown of thorns on his head. We're told that they spat on him. We're told that they 
shoved a spear into his side. We're told that he was whipped, and we're actually told that they pulled his beard. Those are the details. But even those details are told with great restraint, intentional restraint. There's no description. If you can think back to even if whether you saw the movie or not, the, the, the commercials and the advertisements and the editorials and the magazines and all the talk about it, there was, there's no mention in the New Testament, you know, about, about uh, his, his, the blood-spattered onlookers around the cross, the description of his eye sockets being beaten out of shape the way the movie talks about it. No mention of the rivers of blood and flesh that remained on the whipping post. How deeply the shards of metal and glass ripped into his back. Other people talk about those things. The Gospels don't. They just don't. So you have to think about that for a minute. I'm not saying those things didn't happen. And they weren't as brutal as they've been pictured. That's not my point at all. My question, and I think it's the important question, is not one about accuracy, but one of emphasis. Why are the scriptures almost silent about the physical torture of Jesus on the cross? Is there something we're missing here? Is the silence of the scriptures intentional? Or is it just that those people lived in more delicate times and didn't like talking about that kind of stuff. And that can't be. I mean, that just can't be. Let's all admit right now that those days were not days of social delicacy. Okay? Those were days of violence and persecution. Ours is the era of criminal rehabilitation. Those were days of criminal execution. We all understand that difference? Those were days before painkillers. So, why this silence about the gory details of Christ's death in the Scriptures? We need to find a good answer to that question, and I believe that the answer leads us into two brief points that I'm going to wrap up this study with. One, Jesus died on the cross to bear the just wrath of Father God in his own body. In other words, here we are tonight. In a little bit, I'll wrap up. We'll have prayer groups. Tom will come and he'll lead us in some songs and we will worship and we will in different words and in different ways we will proclaim how much we love Jesus. But I love Jesus not because of the nature of his death, but because of the purpose of it. Jesus isn't the only one who suffered when he died. The writer of Hebrews tells of faithful followers of Jesus, I'm not trying to gross you out, this is in your Bible, who rather than suffer, think about this, people who rather than suffer a simple denial of Christ as Lord, 1137 of Hebrews says people were sawn in two. That's in your Bible. Not many people stand up and say, here's my favorite scripture verse. 
I'm not, I'm not trying to be gruesome. I want you to think about that for a minute. These were not the days of quick power saws. You know, try and take it in. A person stretched out on some rack, a large, dirty, jagged tooth saw resting on his chest, a man poised on either end of the saw, awaiting a signal from an executioner before they begin dragging that back and forth. How much does that hurt? How much suffering is that? Did Jesus suffer more than that? Well, I don't know. What kind of a meter do you have for measuring pain? But I know this, that's not the point. I know this, not one of those poor, faithful followers of Jesus who was sawn in two, not one of them died to bring redemption to me. Jesus did. That's the point. That's the point. It's not Jesus' suffering that draws out my love. It's the accomplishment of his death that draws out my love. That's why I love my Lord. He bore the just wrath of Father God against my iniquity. Romans 3, 23, 24, 25. We read most of these at the beginning. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, that's Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So Paul is saying, if God were not absolutely just and holy, there would be no reason in the world for Jesus to die on the cross. If it weren't for the fact that he is, as we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. If he weren't, Jesus wouldn't have to die. He could just sweep my sins under the carpet of his universe. No one would be the wiser. He could just say, ah, forget it. Try and do better next time. But God is just. He is blazingly just. I am a sinner. So Jesus had to die, not just for me, but perhaps, first of all, for Father God. Jesus must die on that cross because God's wrath cannot be withdrawn. It cannot be ignored. It must be unleashed. That's what that currently unused word, propitiation, means. Romans 3.23, Paul says God displayed Jesus as a propitiation in his blood. I've been reminding my Christian ed class that there are two important words that every Christian needs to know. Two theological terms. You don't need to know dozens. You do need to know two, and you need to know what they mean. They aren't just academic. They are the terms propitiation and expiation. Everybody say propitiation. Everybody say expiation. Those don't mean the same thing. They both have to do with something accomplished on the cross. Expiation describes the erasing, ex expiation, the erasing of my sinful record before God, the cleansing of my account. Sins forgiven and sins 
erased. That's the blessing of redemption from my end, expiation. Propitiation is different. Propitiation describes the the fulfilling of justice. The absorption of God's wrath. It's the effect of Christ's death, not from my end, but from Father God's end. It's the bearing and satisfying of God's holy justice. That's what propitiation means. The accomplishment, the satisfying of justice. Sin can't just be ignored. Whether you and I think God needed to do that, forgive me, is absolutely irrelevant You watching TV these days? Are you sick to death of polls and votes and counts and caucuses? And God doesn't do any polls. God just reveals. Like it, don't like it, it is what it is. Away forever with this silly notion that we fallen, morally disabled creatures can adequately make moral assessments of what God should or shouldn't do. Paul says God can't merely pronounce justice. He must be absolutely just. And so first and foremost, I love Jesus not because he suffered, but because he bore the curse of my own sin in himself. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Is that real or isn't it? A couple Sunday nights ago, maybe last Sunday night talked about the fact that the only time it is so significant to me, the only time in the New Testament where Jesus prays and doesn't call God Father. Check it out. It is the only time on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, and that sense of, dare I say it? Can I use Paul's words? That sense of being a curse. Something unclean. Where he he feels the weight of that. God's justice poured out on him. I honestly believe there's something in humanity, even fallen humanity, that recognizes this transaction taking place on the cross. I still have, because I wrote it down, a quote 12 years ago watching a reviewer on CNN, and he was making commentary on his experience viewing the Passion of the Christ. And as usual, he was protesting the violence of the movie. And then he said this, This is is a direct quote. This movie isn't the most violent movie I've ever seen. Other movies have had equal amounts of graphic detail as The Passion. But what made this movie's violence... Remember, this isn't a Christian. What made this movie's violence more offensive was the fact that it was all one-way violence. There was no fighting back. This wasn't like Saving Private Ryan. This was not a typical gangster movie. This was not even Schindler's List. 
This was simply a bloody beating for two hours. And then he said this. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I found this the most disturbing and offensive movie I've ever reviewed. And you know what? I believe he was telling the truth. I don't believe he knew why he was coming to that conclusion, but let me give you my guess. I think he found the movie disturbing for the same reason mankind has always found the cross disturbing. It makes no sense when you leave the justice of God out of it. Like the reviewer said, we all know Jesus wasn't dying for anything he had done. There was no sin in his life. So why is he there on that gruesome cross? Whose sin is he dying for? Is my sin really that bad? And the movie says something about all of us. Second point, and this is a lot shorter, don't panic. It's related to, but not quite the same. Point number two, Jesus died on the cross to please his heavenly Father. One, point number one, I'm talking about Jesus dies on the cross to reveal God's justice, okay? That sin had to be punished. This is slightly different, and I want you to see the emphasis in a minute. Ephesians 5, 2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, so the death of Jesus somehow was not disgusting to God. That's the point I want to make here. It was something eminently lovely. Depending on your translation, in Isaiah 53, it'll say, and it pleased the Father to bruise him, or some translations, it pleased the Father to crush him. Well, is God just some kind of sadist? Is this just some example, as they used to say, of some kind of cosmic child abuse? God and his son? How can it possibly be that the death of Jesus, Jesus offering himself up, is something fragrant to God? And again... Because heaven's emphasis is never on the suffering, but on the accomplishment of the suffering. And the teaching of the scriptures is that Jesus must never be seen as stepping in between a God who is just itching to get his hands on us and Jesus. No, 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 leave him. Leave him alone, Father. It's not that. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The love starts with God, not with the son. cross was Father God's idea in the depths of eternity past. I already read that from 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. So I said at the beginning of this message that the cross would never have happened if God were not blazingly just. But it's equally true that the cross would never have happened if God were not gloriously loving And so the cross has its roots in these two things. The justice of God against all sin and the love of Father God for lost sinners. It was his plan all along 
Jesus died on the cross to please Father God. So remember, if you are going to think about the cross accurately, you can't just start with yourself and what you get. There's not just expiation of our sin, there's propitiation. Satisfying the justice of God. Be moved by the two things. That first, Jesus died to bear the just, holy wrath of God. And second, Jesus died not to interrupt God's plan to punish us, but to carry out the Father's will to redeem us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. That's not where it starts. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Remember that word? To be the propitiation for our sins. The text goes on, by the way, in 1 John. And not our sins only. And not just the sins of the elect. The sins of the whole world, John says. Everyone says, 